Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover a more recent disaster. This week, we're going to discuss the Grenfell Tower fire in 2017. I guess the best place to start this episode is what actually was Grenfell Tower. Grenfell Tower was a 220-foot-tall, 24-story, high-rise residential structure located in the Lancaster West Estate, which is a council housing complex in North Kensington in London, England. You'll sometimes see it called a 25-story building because sometimes they'll include the basement. And just for reference, in England, the 24th floor is called the 23rd because they count the floor you walk in on as the ground floor and the first floor up, so in America, the second floor, as the first floor rather than the second floor. But seeing as I am an American, and if I try and continue to keep that nomenclature, I will inevitably screw it up, I'm going to call the ground floor the first floor and so on. If you're from the UK and listening, I will do my best to include both, but I may screw it up, and for that, I'm sorry ahead of time. Anyway, the whole building is public housing. You see, the United Kingdom has a law that a certain percentage of any new housing has to be classified as affordable housing and in the same area as the new construction. So when they were building new housing in Kensington, more specifically North Kensington, they had to build Grenfell Tower to satisfy that requirement. Grenfell Tower was filled with poor white working class, Arabic refugees, and black British. It's one of the very first high-rises you see as you enter London from Heathrow Airport. Like... If you land and do the whole tourist ride the train to London thing, you see countryside, 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 some suburban areas, and then, bam, there on the horizon is Grenfell. But the general area surrounding Grenfell tends to be not a very poor area. It's, it's more of a high-end area. Many of the homes around where Grenfell stands are in the multi-million pound range, so multi-million dollars. And they generally were not happy about this tall tower blocking their view. Construction was started in 1972, and from the very beginning it was supposed to be a residential structure. The top 20 floors were all originally residential, with six separate apartments on each floor. Each apartment is separated by concrete walls. The apartments were ranged around a center column of concrete housing the staircase, a common lombard area for the floor, and a bank of two elevators. The ground floor was a lobby area with a residential health center. The second floor was an open walkway to the other buildings built as small, finger-type residential buildings for more affordable housing off the back. And the third floor was a combination of some other non-residential stuff, like a nursery and offices and a boxing room and that kind of stuff. This was basically how the tower sat for the first 40 years of its existence. And, yeah, that's a cliffhanger. Because 40 years only brings us to 2012, and the fire happened in 2017. But I'm going to get to that. First, we need to talk about the fire protection inside the building as it was first built. So Grenfell Tower was essentially entirely concrete. The floor is a reinforced concrete, there's a reinforced concrete core, and there are 14 total reinforced external concrete pillars. One in each corner, three columns on the north and south faces, and two on the east and west faces. All of those pillars are rotated at a 45 degree angle to give them a diamond look. So if you're looking at it, it looks like there's triangles jutting out of the front of it, basically for aesthetics. Now, it doesn't take a degree in fire protection engineering to understand that concrete does not burn. 
basically what happens with concrete is, is as it heats up, the water that is inside the concrete from when it sets starts to expand and it pops off and it'll pop off in giant chunks. It's basically called, it's called spalling basically. And it takes a lot, a lot of heat to actually cause spalling. Uh, it's actually one of it's, if you have a, a heat, a very fire in a very concrete type place, it can actually help you determine an area of origin because it takes a lot of prolonged heat to cause concrete to spall. So anyway, because it was built out of concrete, that means Grenfell was designed with a shelter-in-place emergency plan. To quote directly from the British Standard Code of Practice from the time the building was built, it has become apparent and generally agreed that external rescue by the fire service may not always be possible from blocks of flats and masonettes, even when the dwellings are in reach of escape ladders. Also, the assumption should no longer be made that entire buildings or even adjoining dwellings need to be evacuated if a fire occurs. Owing to the high degree of compartmentation provided in dwellings in modern blocks, the spreading of fire and smoke from one dwelling to another and the need to evacuate the occupants of adjoining dwellings are unusual. The occupants should be safe if they remain where they are. So that's a whole lot of fancy words, but what do they mean? Basically, the buildings are constructed in such a way that the fire will not spread to other areas of the building. That's called compartmentation, or as I was always taught, compartmentalization. It apparently is different between the U.S. and the U.K. One of the main goals of fire prevention and protection is to prevent fires from spreading, right? So the best way to do that is to confine the fire. If you can confine the fire to a single area, you have a much easier time extinguishing it. So specifically in the Grenfell Tower building, each flat or apartment was separated by a thick concrete wall. Concrete does not burn, therefore if you have a flat fire in a flat on, say, the fourth floor, it should not leave that flat. Smoke will likely enter the hallway and get into other flats on the same floor and maybe the floor above it, but those lower and higher in the building should have nothing to worry about because there are floors and floors of solid concrete between them and the fire. They do not have to evacuate because it's ludicrous for the fire to reach them. And so that's how Grenfell Tower was designed. Now I want to get into compartmentalization a little bit more because in the United States and the United Kingdom are very different aspects of compartmentalization. Specifically with Grenfell Tower, they had doors between all of the parts of the apartment. So for the people in the United States, the United Kingdom has doors in all their rooms. Like they have doors to the kitchen, they have doors to living room, they have doors to dining room. In the United States, it's generally not like that, especially in apartments. Your kitchen is usually open to a living room or a dining room, or it's just one big solid room compared to being divided up. So in Grenfell Tower, it was divided up. So what that does in the United Kingdom is it helps to prevent the fire spreading beyond that particular room. So if you have a kitchen fire, your fire is going to stay in your kitchen. It's not going to spread out if, as long as you have the doors closed. Whereas in the United States, if you have a fire in the kitchen, in most apartments, you have a fire that's going to do a lot of damage throughout your dining room or living room or whatever you have in your apartment. What it does for the United States is you get a much lower chance of a room going to flash over or you get getting a backdraft. When you have high compartmentalization in buildings, you get a much higher chance of having flashover or having a backdraft because you need confinement for both of those things because you can't have too much oxygen or um, too little fuel. So in, a, in the United States, because you have these big open rooms, 
you generally don't have enough fuel for that room to reach flashover, and you don't have enough confinement for it to get to the point where it can backdraft. Whereas in the United Kingdom, they tend to have smaller fires, but they'll have more flashovers and more backdraft risk. Now, the other thing that happens with these tower blocks being designed with a shelter-in-place system is they don't have a general fire alarm system to notify the entire building. Obviously, there were smoke detectors in each individual flat, but there wasn't like an overarching where you have a fire in one portion of the building, it sets off, uh, like if you have fire on the fifth floor, it sets off fire alarms on the 15th floor to let them know there's a fire in the building. They didn't have that. There didn't really need to be. There wasn't a scenario in which the entirety of the building would need to be evacuated all at once from a fire. Like, they should have planned for that, but the risk of a catastrophic failure of compartmentalization was seen as so low that the added cost of adding a general alarm was unnecessary for the building, and it didn't really make sense. And this also brings another point for the shelter-in-place scenario. Because a general mass evacuation of residents was never considered, the building was not built to handle a simultaneous mass evacuation in addition to firefighting efforts. Grenfell Tower had one centralized staircase. It was also fitted with two elevators, both in the center portion of the structure. In the event of a mass evacuation, the staircase would become quickly overwhelmed by residents attempting to evacuate. This does two things. Number one, people quickly become crushed as they're trying to get down, and a crush disaster can happen in the stairwell. Number two, it entirely prevents firefighters from reaching the fire floor. There's going to be a ton of people in the stairs. Firefighters can't get past them to fight the fire. Now, obviously, some individuals will use the elevator, but they're slow in comparison to the spread of a fire, so it's not really efficient. Most of the evacuation in the event of a complete evacuation of the building is going to be down the stairs. Which brings us to the next point of fire protection in high-rises and Grenfell specifically. Have you ever tried to open a staircase door in a multi-story hotel and really had to fight it to get it open? That's because stairwells and high-rises are pressurized. This is done to keep smoke out of the stairwell. In the event of a fire, the stairs are always the main egress route. Keeping smoke out of the stairs is imperative for life safety because smoke inhalation is the number one cause of death in fires. But it also lowers visibility, so keeping smoke out of stairways is extremely important. But what happens if you have a general alarm in a building and everyone tries to evacuate out the same stairway at the same time? The door gets held or propped open. This allows for the positive pressure in the stairwell to even out through the, throughout each open door, potentially allowing for smoke entry into the stairwell. Grenfell Tower was entirely designed for none of this to be an issue. Obviously, they still have the pressurized stairwell, but that's pretty standard and has been for some time. The positive pressure in the stairwell keeps the smoke out when you open the door. The only people who were supposed to evacuate from their flats in Grenfell Tower in the event of a fire were those on the actual fire floor and potentially those on the next level impacted by any smoke travel. Though in theory, they shouldn't be impacted at all because Grenfell also had another way to deal with keeping smoke out of the stairwells and common areas. They had installed a smoke control system. Basically, this was two vent shafts on the north side of the building that would automatically open when the smoke was detected on the lobby in each or in the lobby on each floor. So so basically if you had a fire on the fifth floor, 
these two vents on the north side of the building would open, while simultaneously on the south side of the lobby, two vents would open and fans would turn on that would draw fresh air in from the outside just above the third floor, creating a positive pressure in the impacted fire floor. Then fans on the north side at roof level would draw the smoke up and out of the building from the lobby area. So basically you're trying to create a vertical wind tunnel to draw the smoke out of the fire floor to keep it clear so that people can see. Now I know what you're thinking. The one thing that would really help prevent fires in this high-rise are sprinklers. And just before we get into it, it's a common misconception that fire sprinklers are designed to extinguish fires when they break out. That is technically not the case. Sprinklers are designed to prevent the fire from spreading beyond that area. Sometimes they do successfully put them out, but that's technically not what they're designed for. They're just designed to prevent the fire from spreading so the fire department can get there in a timely manner and put it out themselves. Now that I've explained that, I get to tell you that it doesn't at all matter in Grenfell Tower because there were no sprinklers in the building, like at all. There were no sprinklers anywhere in this building. England did not have a sprinkler requirement for high-rise buildings taller than 30 meters until 2007. They had several instances of fires that killed firefighters and residents that it was suggested sprinklers start to be added and then it was required. But the problem with this is, oftentimes, fire codes are not retroactively applied. So if a building is built in, say, oh, I don't know, 1972, and has not had a change of occupancy since then, it still falls under the fire codes that were in effect in 1972. And what I mean by that is change of occupancy is it changes from what the building used to be. So it goes from residential to commercial, or industrial to commercial, or industrial to residential, something like that. You need to have a change of occupancy, change of use for the building, in order for com modern fire codes to be applied. Grenfell never had a change of occupancy, so it never had sprinklers installed. So those are the big fire safety things that were existing in Grenfell before 2012. Shelter in place procedure, and well, no sprinklers and no fire alarm. But as you might know, those weren't the big thing everyone was focused on in the aftermath of this fire. The big focus was on cladding attached to the exterior of the structure. But we're going to get to that in here in a little bit. Beginning in 2012, a refurbishment of Grenfell Tower was planned. The plan was to install new windows, put up cladding on the exterior, and convert the third and fourth floors to residential floors, as well as some other cosmetic stuff. The cladding was to make the building look prettier, and also to help with energy efficiency and heating the building. By the 2000s, the building had begun to show signs of its age, and the brutalist concrete style had long since fallen out of style. The wealthy homeowners around Grenfell wanted this giant hulking structure to look prettier. So they came up with a way to give the building a new look that could also give the exterior of the building a new, more modern look. That solution was external cladding. That cladding was used as a rain screen and an insulator and also changed the color from ugly concrete to a different color. This cladding system was made of essentially three key parts. There was the exterior material, a void space, and then the foam insulation sitting right on the concrete. Now I'm going to go through each part and describe what each one did and the thermal properties surrounding the layer, because obviously this was a fire, so that is important. So we're going to start with the insulation. The insulation was affixed directly to the concrete. On the columns, this consisted of one 4-inch layer of, and forgive me, 
polyisocyanurate polymer foam, or PIR foam for short, because I don't know if I could say that again. On the spaces between the columns, it consisted of two 3-inch foam boards stacked on top of each other, so basically 6 inches of PIR foam. The foam was then covered with a thin sheet of aluminum. Now this material has an ignition temperature of about 600 degrees Fahrenheit, 315 Celsius, and 588 Kelvin, and it has low thermal inertia. What is thermal inertia? Well, it's basically a solid's capability of diffusing heat through it. So metal has a high thermal inertia because heat disperses through it rapidly. Insulation and wood and things like that have a low thermal inertia because if you have a low thermal inertia, the heat on the surface of the object cannot disperse and it will reach pyrolysis or flaming combustion faster. Basically, the heat sits on the surface and it doesn't disperse through, so it just keeps building heat right there on the surface and allows it to get to an actual point of burning much faster. Now, pyrolysis is the charring of something, just so that we're aware of that. And then that thin aluminum layer is essentially useless, as aluminum melts at about 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, which is well below the level of direct flame impingement. For reference, direct flame is anywhere from about 1400 Fahrenheit to about 1800 Fahrenheit, give or take, so 760 to 980 Celsius and 1030 to 1260 Kelvin. The other thing the insulation does is allow for rapid fire spread because it does not allow for energy loss to the surrounding environment, otherwise it wouldn't be insulation. So the energy all stays in the space and continues to transfer to the next thing to burn, basically helping further spread. Then the next layer was a void space where there was nothing, just empty air. On the columns of the building, it was about five and a half inches of space, and on the areas outside the columns, it was about six inches of space. This space was essential for two reasons. Number one, it allowed for ventilation behind the rain screen, and number two, it allowed any water that managed to get behind the rain screen to drain. This provided abundant oxygen for the fire. That's basically it's only for thermal property. Then the final layer was the actual rain screen. The rain screen actually affixed to the building was aluminum composite panels. These composite panels consisted of a polyethylene core surrounded by thin sheets of aluminum. The polyethylene core was about a tenth of an inch thick with extremely thin pieces of aluminum sheeting. Like I said before, the aluminum is basically useless in fire prevention as it melts at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit, which is way lower than direct flame impingement. But the polyethylene is a thermoplastic, meaning it will melt and drip when heated, and those drops are generally flaming. Think of lighting the corner of a plastic bag. As it burns, it drips flames. This polyethylene core will ignite about 710 degrees Fahrenheit, or 377 Celsius, or 650 Kelvin. All of this will be extremely important later on. But that wasn't the only change they made. With the old building, the windows were obviously set into the concrete and sat flush with the edge. When they added the cladding, they installed new windows. But they did not put the windows back in the same mounting. They moved the mounting out to be even with the cladding, but when they did that, they did not put a non-combustible barrier in between the concrete and the insulation. It was just a UPVC covering, which quickly loses its stiffness at relatively low temperature like 150 degrees Fahrenheit low temperature. What I mean by that is that it essentially fails. It just kind of warps and falls off. It doesn't really burn, it chars, and just kind of falls away from where it's been attached. 
What that means is that the fire has free access to the insulation that we discussed earlier as easily ignitable. And finally, the last major thing that changed in the refurbishment was the smoke control system from earlier. They realized that the lobbies for the floors could become really hot even when there wasn't a fire. So fresh air would be brought in from the outside on the south side and warmer air would be expelled up the north shafts. But what happened is, if smoke was detected in a lobby, all the vents on the non-fire impacted floors would close, the fans on the south side of the building on the third floor would reverse, and fresh air would be provided from the stairwell, creating the positive pressure on the fire floor. So fans on the north side at roof level and fans on the south side at the third floor are drawing smoke out of the building from the lobby that's affected by the fire. So that pretty much summarizes the changes for Grenfell Tower between 2012 and 2015, with the major focus being the cladding on the exterior of the building because, well, it was the easiest to tell from the outside and it cost the most. And the cost of that cladding is what brought us here. Originally, residents had voted and agreed to a different cladding. The original cladding was zinc with a fire-resistant core, but the housing authority decided last minute that the budget for all that was too high, so they changed it. The reason given at the time that it was due to a change in desired color, but saving 293,368 pounds, about $315,000, was most likely a bigger reason why. Now, in the months and weeks and years leading up to the Grenfell Tower fire, many of the residents had complained of lax fire safety measures. They had fired, all of the doors of the apartments had fire doors that were supposed to close automatically behind them in the case of a fire, because it'll take fire to get longer, take a fire longer to get through a door. So these fire doors were made so that they were supposed to close. Many of these were broken, and they didn't close, they just stayed open. And this was a problem throughout this fire, as we'll see, because doors will randomly be open when people said they closed them and stuff like that. There were many reports before this fire that fire extinguishers had expired and several of them had the word condemned written on them. There was an entire group at Grenfell Tower who basically performed their own risk assessment to bring forth awareness to how bad conditions were in Grenfell Tower, fire safety-wise. But the housing authority threatened them with legal action to stop talking or they would sue them. There were also many concerns raised that the smoke ventilation system wasn't going to work in the event of a fire, which is a major problem because there's only one stairwell and the central portion of that smoke ventilation system was the stairwell providing positive pressure to keep the stairwell clear of smoke and get that positive pressure on the fire floor to push the smoke out of the, the vents that the smoke ventilation system was designed to use. Basically, if positive pressure is not in the stairwell, that stairwell is very quickly going to become overwhelmed with smoke, thick black smoke, that's not going to allow people to escape in a timely manner if they need to. All that brings us to the night of Wednesday, June 14th, 2017, and flat number 16 on the 5th floor of Grenfell Tower. That's the 4th floor in the UK. Flat 16 was in the northeast corner of the tower and was a two-bedroom flat. Three tenants lived in the flat at the time, Behalo Kebede, Almaz Kinfu, and Elsa Afawarki. The flat was set up fairly simply. You walk in the door from the south, directly in front of you is a bedroom, walk forward a few feet, and there's a hallway off to your right. 
travel down that hall and there's a second bedroom on your left and a bathroom directly across from it on the right. At the end of the hall on the left was a doorway to a living room and on the right was a doorway to a kitchen. On the night of June 13th, Bahalo Kebede arrived at home at about 11.30 p.m. At that time, both Almaz and Elsa were already in bed and asleep. Bahalo took a shower, changed clothes, and went to sleep on his mattress in the living room. Everything seemed to be a normal night. There was no unusual noises, no strange smells, no strange sounds, nothing out of the ordinary. A short time later, Bahalo was awoken by a strange beeping noise. He couldn't figure out what it was, but it finally dawned on him it must be a smoke detector. Going into the hallway, he then determined it was the kitchen smoke detector because the hallway one wasn't alarming because he was standing underneath it. Opening the door to the kitchen, he witnessed thick, light gray smoke coming from behind the refrigerator. Realizing that something was on fire, he went back and grabbed his phone and dialed 999, which is the emergency number in England, like 911 in the U.S., while doing this, he went and banged on the doors of his roommates, yelling that there was a fire and to get out. He then went out into the hallway and woke up all of his neighbors to let them know there was a fire. Literally banged on every door on his floor to let his neighbors know there was a fire. He went back into his flat and put on some pants, trousers in, here in the UK, while switching off the main electrical switch at his fuse box because he thought the fire was electrical and figured, why not, it can't hurt to try, which, you know, is fair. Now I want to take a moment here to address some rumors that flew around in the aftermath of this fire about Bahalu and his actions. He did everything correct in the situation. He notified his roommates, he notified his floor mates, and there was a rumor that he had a bag packed. But what actually happened was his roommate had been gone somewhere and had still had a bag packed. So when she left, she just grabbed the bag and took it with her. There was nothing nefarious about why she had a bag packed. It literally was just there. And I just need to say that so that I can get that out there because Behalu Kebede has had death threats in the aftermath of this. He's had his life threatened numerous times. He has been terrified and he feels extremely guilty. And he did absolutely nothing wrong. He is absolutely a hero in this situation because he let everyone know. He did everything correct, and I want to get that out of the way now to let everyone know that Bahalo Kebedi is a hero. Anyway, the London Fire Brigade immediately dispatched four pieces of apparatus. In London, they're called pumps. There's a regular pump and a ladder pump. The only main difference is the ladder pump has a slightly longer ladder, hence it gets the name ladder pump. They're both capable of pumping and supplying water for fire suppression. They're basically like engines here in the States. As they were driving up to the tower, an orange glow was visible in the window of one of the flats on the fifth floor, fourth floor in the UK. Upon arrival, they set up next to the dry rise inlet for the tower. When Grenfell was built, it was built with a dry riser that could be filled with water by the fire department from the ground upon arrival at a fire in the building. So a dry riser is basically a pipe that stretches from the ground floor all the way up to the roof, and as a firefighter, you go... you. You hook it up when you get there, you hook it up, you hook your hydrant, your engine up to the hydrant, pump water in, and then you hook it up to the dry riser, and your engine provides water all the way up to the top of the riser. That way, when you get to the fire floor, you can hook your hose up to it, and you have a water supply on whatever floor you need to. So if you have a fire on the, say, the fifth floor and the twelfth floor, you have, you take a hose to the fifth floor, put the fire out on the fifth floor, you can disconnect the hose, carry the hose up to the twelfth floor, 
hook it back up there, and then you can just attack the fire on the 12th floor. That way you don't have to run a whole bunch of hose up the stairs. Makes sense. Anyway, back to our story. This meant the first due apparatus arrived at 12.59 a.m., hooked up a hose line to the closest hydrant, and also hooked up a hose line to the dry riser in the tower. So we're at 12.59 a.m. The fire is barely visible on the fifth floor, fourth floor, of Grenfell Tower through the window. You can just see an orange glow. And this is really where we start to run into issues in this fire. They went to make entry into the building and had no key fob to get in. Luckily, one of the residents was standing at the base of the tower and was able to swipe their key fob and give them access. Now, the London Fire Brigade is supposed to maintain a risk database for all buildings in London. It turns out that um, all buildings in London is a very generous reading of that. It's supposed to contain building plans, photographs, construction type, potential plans for incidents, and general size of the building information. The file for Grenfell Tower had the wrong number of floors, a single aerial image from above, no construction plans, and there was literally a blank box where the tactical plan was supposed to be. They had some information from the tower, so like they had learned information from the tower from visiting on other runs and other emergencies, but that was literally it. They didn't know anything else. And there was absolutely zero information on the refurbishment upgrades and the type of material used in those refurbishment upgrades. So two firefighters, crew manager Charles Batterby and firefighter Daniel Brown, hooked a hand line to the dry riser on the fifth floor, fourth floor, and made entry into the apartment at about 1.08 a.m. Meanwhile, outside, Behalu Kebedi was taking a video of the fire inside his flat from the ground, because he had evacuated, obviously, because his apartment was on fire. At 1.05 a.m., the orange glow of the fire is barely visible from the ground. The only glow visible is in the top corner of the window. Just four minutes later, so 1.09 a.m., right about the same time firefighters made entry into the apartment, the fire is a large glow and is visibly starting to impact the cladding above the window. Meanwhile, inside flat 16, the two firefighters were performing a systematic search of the flat. Finding no fire in bedrooms 1 and 2 or the living room, they made first entry into the kitchen door at 1.14 a.m. Immediately, the two firefighters were hit with significant heat. Now, I know what you're asking. Why are they doing a systematic search of this flat if they know the fire is in the kitchen? Now, when you do a fire, when you invest, when you fight a fire, you have to start immediately upon entry because you will get lost. You don't know the area you're going into. So you have to either choose to do a right-hand search or a left-hand search. What that means is, say you're doing a left-hand search, which is what they did in this situation. They stick their left hand on the wall and they sweep their leg out into the middle of the room. They crawl on their hands and knees and sweep their leg into the middle of the room, searching for things. They keep their left side of their body in contact with the wall, their left hand in contact with the wall, and they do a search. And they do it through the whole thing. So if they find a door, they open the door, continue to do the left-hand search through that till they get back out, and then they go to the next part. They have to do that in order to make sure that there aren't any other fires that they're missing. And... Nine times out of ten, when you're going into a fire, it's dark. It's very smoky, so you can't see. So you can't just go 
busting in and go straight to the source of the fire unless you immediately see the fire upon entry, which they didn't in this case. They had to do an actual search to make sure there wasn't any fire anywhere else and so that they knew where they were because they have to be able to get back out. So that's why they were doing a search of the apartment instead of going straight to the source of the fire because we know where the fire is. They likely knew where the fire is, but they don't know where in relation to anything else in the apartment that fire is. Which also goes back to the fact that they had no pre-planning for this building, so they didn't know anything. If they had done, you know, drills or whatever at this building beforehand, they may have been able to go straight to the fire, and this may not have happened. But it's likely they still would have had to do their left-hand search to get through the whole building, the whole apartment, to make sure they know where the fire is. Anyway, so immediately upon opening the kitchen door, they're hit with heat. Now, I need to explain something to you guys that you so you understand about fighting fire. When you're in there, and you're working, and you're pulling hose up and down, and you're spraying the water on the fire, the heat doesn't really enter your brain. Like, obviously it's hot, but it's also mixing with, you know, just being warm from doing physical work, and it's, you got adrenaline pumping, and like, it's a whole thing. Like, you're not really thinking about, oh, this is a fire, this is hot, because obviously your gear helps disperse some of the heat and you're working so you're focused on you know being tired or whatever job you're doing so when you start to notice that like hey it's getting a little hot in here is when you start to get worried because once that thought enters your brain like uh I'm hot for reasons other than I'm working then bad things begin to happen and that's what happened here one of the firefighters noticed that it was starting to burn his arms and neck so Basically, what they did was they'd open the kitchen door, they'd spray in for a second, and they'd close it. Then they'd open it again, spray in for a second, and close it. Trying to cool off the fire so they could actually get inside and make entry and knock the fire down. Eventually, they decided this wasn't working, so they just said to hell with it and fully entered the kitchen at about 1.20am. Water was sprayed on the fire at the refrigerator because they had a, a thermal imaging camera, a tick for short. They had a tick with them and was able to see the heat around the refrigerator and directly in front of the window. They were able to spray down the fire at the refrigerator and it went pretty well. It knocked it fairly well far down. They radioed back to let them know they'd knocked down the fire in the kitchen, but just then they saw a flame out the kitchen window. They attempted to spray it, but to no avail and then had the realization that, oh crap, the fire has jumped the floor and radioed back to tell them that it was no longer contained. Fortunately, Command also knew the fire had escaped contained, but um, they hadn't really done much about it. Then, the two firefighters inside the flat had to stand there and watch as giant balls of burning debris rained down past the window. It's likely they realized together that this had gone well beyond just the apartment above them. This was now a major, major issue. The two first entry firefighters then handed off their handline to firefighter Nicholas Barton and firefighter John O'Hanlon. O'Hanlon was able to extinguish the last remaining bit of fire around the fridge, and smoke began to emit from the window, allowing them to actually be able to see in the kitchen. What they saw was not good. Basically, the entire area around the window was on fire. Firefighter O'Hanlon even went so far as to sit on the windowsill and lean out to spray water upwards and around to put the fire out, and it, it didn't work at all. Like, it didn't work at all. 
At around this same time, one firefighter went to the next floor and encountered a family who said they'd just left their flat and it was on fire. Just a few minutes after that, another firefighter made it to the seventh floor, sixth floor, and found three people who had left flat 36 and said that their flat was on fire. The firefighter made entry into the apartment and found a floor-to-ceiling wall of black smoke. It was at this point the fire department fell far behind this fire. They had fires on three floors, at least, and a rapidly growing fire up the side of the structure. They called for two more pumps and manpower at 1.13 a.m., and two more pumps again at 1.19 a.m., and then two more pumps were requested at 1.24 a.m. By this time, residents on the 22nd floor were calling 999 to report the smell of smoke. They were instructed to stay in place, which was the advice given for all of Grenfell. One resident called at 1.25 a.m. from the 12th floor and said that there was a fire in her kitchen. Fresh reminder, they still had not changed the plan from a shelter-in-place plan. They had a fire start on the 5th floor. They now have a fire on the 12th floor, still telling people to shelter-in-place. Absolutely by 1.25 a.m., the fire brigade had completely lost control of this fire. The master streams for their pumps could only reach up four floors, and the fire was obviously well beyond that. Video at 1.27 a.m. shows the fire at the roof line of Grenfell Tower. Just a minute later, the commander requested three more aerial ladders and five more apparatus. But he had no idea that the fire had already penetrated the structure farther up the building. He made no attempt to change the shelter-in-place recommendation. By this point, all hell had broken loose in the tower. Residents were calling left and right saying their flats were either on fire, filled with smoke, or not filled with smoke, but they couldn't get out because the lobby was filled with smoke. Residents were calling and saying they were scared, trapped, and didn't know what to do. Then soon after came the call to make it 20 pumps, but this was pointless. The fire was out of control. It was evacuate everyone or nothing. London Fire Brigade watch manager Dowden continued to choose nothing. Well, actually, he continued to choose to believe the foolhardy hope that he could control this fire when he very clearly could not. And I don't mean to disparage him, besides his very slow reaction time, this fire was like nothing most had ever seen. It traveled basically 20 stories in a matter of 20 minutes. That is incredibly efficient fire spread. He was just overwhelmed, and a lack of adequate communication really hampered his ability to deal with this fire. And maybe a bit of pride as well, admitting they needed to evacuate everyone was admitting defeat. That was basically admitting that they were going to have to give the building up to the fire. And I know a lot of firefighters, and they will fight to the death to admit that they have to give up a building. Watch manager Dowden literally admitted several times in his, essentially, deposition and his testimony that he was overwhelmed by how fast the fire had spread and he was out of his element not knowing what to do next. But just because he didn't recall the shelter-in-place order doesn't mean residents just sat and waited. Faced with staying in rapidly smoke-filling flats or trying to escape, many chose escape. But there was an issue with some of the people attempting to escape on the upper floors. It seems that a group of people had decided that the best course of action was to head up rather than down. Many residents reported attempting to go down the stairs but being met by a group of 10 to 12 people going up the stairs. Why they were going up instead of down, no one really knows. 
It's possible they thought they were going to be rescued from the roof by helicopter or that going farther away from the fire would give the fire brigade more time to extinguish the fire. But as we've already noticed, this fire was not going to be extinguished. Many residents called 999 repeatedly. The control room, which is basically dispatch, was quickly overwhelmed with calls and phones were constantly ringing. But a critical decision was made that doesn't make a lot of sense. The 999 control room was receiving calls from residents letting them know where smoke was and where fire was on various different floors in the building. These were being handwritten on notes to be given to the incident commander all at the same time. But this was never going to be effective. The fire was growing too rapidly and giving all that information of once would have been hard to parse. And by the time they'd received that information, that was, you know, several 10-15 minutes old, the fire would have already traveled up another three floors or it would have traveled to a completely different area or a place that was on fire that had people in it. Now those people are in a different flat or escaping. It didn't really help the fire ground. The people working dispatch couldn't understand what was happening and did not have the knowledge available to them to realize that this incident had spiraled well out of anyone's control. They didn't know why they had a fire that was reported on the fourth floor, that's fourth floor in the UK, fifth floor in the United States, and they were getting calls from people on the 23rd floor that there was a fire in their kitchen. That didn't make sense to them. They didn't know how that could happen. They made several choices not to pass off information they received because they figured the fire brigade was there, so they would already know. But the fire brigade didn't know. The incident commander still believed the fire was contained outside of the building on the cladding. He did not know it had breached the exterior of the building. Communication had broken down again. At the time of the start of the fire, there were 297 people in the tower. By 1.30 a.m., 112 had evacuated successfully. By 1.40 a.m., that number grew to 148, leaving just over the half of the occupants still trapped inside. This scene was essentially chaos. Firefighters were up and down floors trying to find and rescue literally anyone, but they kept running into an issue. First of all, they weren't receiving any information as to where anyone was, so they didn't know where to go to rescue people. But second of all, the higher they got in the tower, the worse radio reception got, and the worse smoke conditions got. Two firefighters, Badillo and Secret, made it to the 20th floor on a mission to find a young girl, Jessica Urbano Ramirez. Firefighter Badillo had been stopped by Jessica's sister and told that she was 12 years old and in their flat on the 20th floor alone. Firefighter Badillo immediately said he would try and rescue her. When he arrived on the 20th floor, he found the door to her apartment open and the apartment empty. What had happened was, she had gone with people up to the very top floor, and the control room knew that because one of the control officers was on the phone with her. But they did not relay that information to the fire ground to let them know that they had moved. So, Firefighter Badillo went back down, and unfortunately, this rescue mission failed in multiple ways because firefighter Badillo and firefighter secret did not knock on any of the other doors on the 20th floor and a family of four still alive in a nearby apartment was not told of the change in policy to escape not to stay put all four members of that family died but jessica also would not make it out she spent an hour on the phone with the dispatch center on the 24th floor 23rd floor in the uk 
begging them to save her. Literally begging them to send the fire department to save the 10 or 12 people she was with. Control room officer Sarah Russell did everything she could on the phone with this girl to keep her calm and safe. But Russell was also not notified of the change in stay put policy. Technically, this is later on, after it was officially changed. She listened to this poor 12-year-old girl slowly die on the phone, begging to be saved. She could hear her begging, and then she could hear her start to cough, and her coughing got more and more labored, more and more labored, and then it would become a gurgling sound, and then, eventually, the phone would fall silent, except for the occasional shattering of glass, chirp of a smoke detector, or crackle of a fire. By 1.45 a.m., conditions on basically every floor of the building were terrible. But at that point, conditions in the stairwell were kind of decent. But that didn't last very long. Just after 2 a.m., the fire was declared a major incident, which sent in additional units as well as ambulances and more police. Up to this point, multiple contacts had been made by firefighters to residents on several floors, and the firefighters had told them to stay put, they would be safer there, and someone would be back to get them because smoke conditions on the stairs were deteriorating. As I had mentioned earlier, the interior of the tower wasn't getting any updated information on the emergency calls being made by people in the tower, so they essentially had no idea where anyone else was. So on the fly, they came up with a system to organize and receive calls to then dispatch firefighters up for rescues. They literally used runners. Literally, firefighters running from the command post in the building on the second floor outside to where the calls were being received, writing the calls on pieces of paper, and then running them back inside. Then repeat and repeat and repeat. The incident commander at the time began organizing the call logs by literally writing on the wall of the lobby he was in. Then would hand a sheet of paper detailing where each crew would go as the crew came by him to go up in the tower. Two crews that were dispatched to the upper floors, like 23rd and 24th floors actually questioned whether or not they could reach that high with the air they had. They were told, literally, quote, you can only do what you can do because that's all we've got at the moment. Which is not great, but also pretty accurate. They didn't have much at the moment they could do. The prioritization for the rescues was, there wasn't one. It was literally described as luck of the draw. They had no way of knowing who priority should or would be. There were numerous command staff on site, and still no one had confirmed whether the fire had breached the interior of the building higher up, or if it was only exterior. Which I have to say is truly baffling to me, especially considering by this time, 2.15am or so, numerous firefighters had literally witnessed fires in other flats on numerous floors, but radio communications were not working, and so that information was not transmitted. Things could not have been more chaotic. It's clear that this situation was desperate for many people inside the tower. They were trapped. Fire was coming in from the outside. Smoke was rolling in from the inside and the outside. Firefighters would come in and tell them they couldn't get them out because there was too much smoke. Many likely realized that no one would be coming for them. So, some say made a hard choice. Rather than wait to suffocate or burn to death, they jumped. One heartbreaking story is of a man by the name of Muhammad Amid Nada. Mr. Nada lived on the very top floor of Grenfell Tower. He helped his wife and son escape, then turned around to help others that had taken shelter in his flat. 
Realizing he would not escape, Mr. Nada called his family members and left a message which said, Goodbye. We are leaving this world now. Goodbye. I hope I haven't disappointed you. Goodbye to all. Then Mr. Nada jumped from the top story. There were numerous other attempts to escape as well. One resident tied a bunch of sheets together and climbed down the outside of the tower rather than wait to be rescued. Now, it's about 2.42 a.m. A major incident has been declared. They have at this point received emergency calls from 58 adults and 16 children in the tower. The fire is essentially wrapped around the entire building. The shelter-in-place advice being given to callers had still not officially been recalled because fire gun commanders still, stubbornly, believed the building had not been penetrated. Eventually, a new, higher-ranking incident commander took over. Now, the timeline here gets a little fuzzy. The new commander believed that the stay-in-place advice should have been revoked already because just by looking at the now fully engulfed 20-story fire, it was clear the compartmentalization had catastrophically failed. Thank you, someone with sense finally shows up. But there's also evidence that the dispatch control room had already decided they were done with the stay-put advice and were telling callers to get out because those in the control room are literally on the phone with these people who are absolutely terrified and panicking and just want to get out. And it had to have been hard to keep telling them, no, 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 you stay there. We're sending firefighters when they have no idea what firefighters are coming. They've had numerous 999 calls of people who were called multiple times for multiple minutes where no firefighters had come to get them. And they were calling and be like, hey, where's the fire department? And they didn't have anything to tell them because they didn't know. So it's likely that the control room said, hell with this stay put, you have to get out, you have to get out now. Either way, the stay put advice was officially revoked by 2.50 a.m. An hour and 20 minutes after the flames had officially reached the top floor of the building, 20 floors up, and after they had received tens of emergency calls from residents saying the fire had entered flats on different floors, they were just moving them to different flats. Like, they basically played musical apartments. Musical chairs running, trying to run from fires, telling people to go into a different flat to get away from the smoke and the flames, instead of just telling them to get out. I understand they're trying to maintain compartmentalization, but at that point, you have lost. This, You have lost. You need to cut your losses, get everyone out of that building. This is not an extinguishment situation. This is a get everyone out as fast as humanly possible situation. The building is lost. Save the people. There are two rules in firefighting. You save lives, then you save materials. You always save lives first. You have to keep your own life safe. You have to keep the people you're rescuing life safe. Material comes later. If you have to destroy something to save someone's life, you do it. If you have to let that building burn down and focus on rescuing, you absolutely do it. I was taught in Fire Academy, first rule is saving lives, second rule is saving property. You always take the lives over property, and they just... I think they lost it. They lost that ruling. They thought that they could chain, contain this fire. They let their pride get in the way, and it, it killed people. The control room began to tell people in no uncertain terms they had to get out, and this would be their last chance. No one was coming to save them. They told them to wet towels and blankets, wrap them around their heads, hold hands, and make for the stairs. If they didn't, they would die. 
at 2.46 a.m., an emergency call was received from Nur Hudo El-Wahhabi on the 22nd floor. She was told to cover herself with wet towels and try to get out of the building as best she could. When Nur Huda El-Wahhabi told her she couldn't get out, the control room operator told her, I know you can't, but it's, we're not going to get you. Get yourself out of the building as best you can, okay? Do you hear me? Try and get yourself out. They received calls from the same phone three separate times and advised them to get out, but on the third and last call, the phone call was completely silent. No one could be heard on the other end. Nurhudo El-Wahhabi and her family would not make it out of Grenfell Tower alive. By 3.30 a.m., the fire was burning in all four faces of the building. The last few remaining flats that had escaped the fire to that point were becoming more and more at risk. There were fewer and fewer places to hide inside the building. At about 3 a.m., the Metropolitan Police Service had begun to supply firefighters with riot shields to protect themselves from falling, burning cladding. One firefighter handed off his shield to the firefighter in front of him just as a body fell from a higher story and hit the shield. That firefighter survived. Ahmed Aguari had been on the phone with his sister, Mariam, from 2.33 a.m. on. He was outside of the building and was encouraging her to get out, but she kept replying that no, she could not get out. The landing was full of smoke and she couldn't see. But he believed she didn't want to leave their mother behind. At about 3.10 a.m., starting to panic and then began to cough. Then she made a deep humming noise and began to mumble before falling silent on the phone. Soon after that, Ahmed heard his mother say in Arabic that she couldn't breathe, then he heard nothing. He stayed on that phone call until 4.27 a.m. hoping to hear anything. So from 3.10 a.m. to 4.27 a.m., he sat there in complete silence, hoping upon hope that he would hear his mother or his sister. But he only heard shattering glass and the whooshing sound of flames. Neither would make it out of the tower alive. The only two people to make it out of the top floor were the son and wife of Mohammed Ahmed Nada. All the other occupants of the 24th floor died in their flats or jumped to escape the flames. In flat 193 on the 23rd floor, one last call was made at 3.24 a.m. Trapped in that flat were five adults and six children. The last thing heard from flat 193 was a male calling out, I love you, presumably to his children. And then it went silent. All 11 victims were found in that flat. In flat 122 on the 16th floor, Rebecca Ross and her father Stephen were in her bedroom. Suddenly, Rebecca saw a cloud of black smoke and decided that she needed to escape. She ran out the door and made it to the stairs. Eventually, she made it to the stairwell door and started to climb down. She started to lose consciousness and were was found by firefighters and carried the rest of the way down. That was when she realized that her father, Stephen Power, was still in the flat on the 16th floor. Stephen Power would later be found in his bedroom with his dogs nearby. Essentially, everyone was out of the building by 5 a.m. except for two people. Antonio Roncolato from the 11th floor and Elpidio Nofacio from the 12th floor. Antonio would wear his son's swimming goggles and a rucksack, as well as wet towels as he was guided down the stairs by firefighters. 
He left the fire tower at 6.05 a.m., a full five hours after the fire started. Opidio was frequently photographed waving a white towel out a window for hours waiting for rescue. Eventually, firefighters would carry him out of the building at 8.07 a.m. He was the last resident to leave the tower alive. In total, 72 people would perish inside Grenfell Tower. Everyone below the 12th floor would make it out alive. Only five total people would survive the top two floors of the tower. We obviously know the origin of this fire, the kitchen of flat 16 on the 5th floor, 4th floor in the UK. We literally have a witness statement and the fire department statement seeing the fire in its origin. The discussion of the cause, however, is a bit more difficult. There are several potential ignition sources in the area of origin. The refrigerator, the outlet, an old freezer, a mini fridge, a window extractor fan, and the stove just to the right of the refrigerator. The mini fridge and old freezer were eliminated immediately due to not being plugged in. The outlet, the extractor fan, and the stove were both eliminated as potential ignition sources for the fire early on in this investigation because they didn't have any evidence of electrical malfunctioning or anything like that, basically leaving the refrigerator. Multiple conductors consistent with wiring inside the refrigerator exhibited signs of arcing and electrical activity, indicating some sort of fault within the refrigerator. It was suggested by one of the experts in the case that the fire was a result of an overheating of a crimp connection in the freezer, which tracks. Unfortunately, due to the damage and the financial constraints of this investigation, they weren't able to do the in-depth analysis of the refrigerator that they wanted to do. They, in order to fully determine a single failure point in this refrigerator, they would need to do more destructive testing, and they just weren't able to do it. They still could, they still have the refrigerator, but they haven't done it yet. That doesn't change the fact that the failure was at the refrigerator. If you look at fire patterns within this building, because you can, there are pictures in the Grinfell inquiry that show the fire patterns. There is very distinct V patterns coming up off of the fridge and back from behind where the fridge was located. There are also very significant burn patterns on the floor underneath the fridge, which were not visible anywhere else. And generally, you don't get burn patterns on floors unless you're generally near the area of origin or the, the fire starts down low because heat rises, fire rises. So you don't generally get that low burning unless the fire already started low or there's a fuel source on the ground because this was a kitchen and it was a tile floor. There is no fuel source on the ground, especially not around the refrigerator. So it's likely the fire started around the back portion of the refrigerator and spread up and out from there. So basically in a fire investigation, you want to start from the point of least amount of damage and move to the area of greater amount of damage. When you have something like a floor level burning, you need to be able to explain why you would have a floor level burning. So in this case, the refrigerator, most of the combustibles of the refrigerator are at floor level. If you go and look at your fridge behind it, most of like the capacitor and that kind of stuff is at the base of the refrigerator. So all of the combustibles that are going to burn are down at floor level. So if you have a fire failure in the refrigerator, you have a fire start in the refrigerator, it's going to start down low. You're going to have low level burning. You're going to have significant damage on the backside, the wall back behind, and you're going to have significant damage at floor level. And what happened in this case 
was there was significant calcination on the wall, which is basically the moisture being drawn out of the drywall, and it makes it powdery, and it leaves like a white, it, it makes it look white, basically. So there was significant calcination behind the refrigerator. There was also significant um, metal discoloration coming up in a um, an angled pattern back from behind the refrigerator across the front of the refrigerator, which indicates a fire flow starting low and traveling upwards, up and out, which is how fire burns. So all those fire patterns, including the witness statements of Behalu Kebedi seeing the fire at the refrigerator when he opened the door, the fire department seeing the fire on the tick at the refrigerator and the area directly around the refrigerator, points to a failure of like the, the fire originating at the refrigerator. Now we have some evidence of arcing electrical activity on wiring that is consistent with the inside of the refrigerator, so around the capacitor and things like that. So we can confidently conclude that the fire was a failure of the refrigerator. What the specific failure was in the refrigerator, we may never know due to the damage of the refrigerator, due to how much damage it sustained in this fire. But with significantly more testing, we may be able to eventually prove it. Now, Whirlpool, the manufacturer of the refrigerator, did attempt to put forth an alternative theory, which I'm going to mention is utterly preposterous, but we must hear all sides. Whirlpool's suggestion was someone from a higher floor in the tower tossed a lit cigarette out of the window. It fell several stories, then was blown into the window of flat 16 and ignited available combustibles there. What those available combustibles would be, no one seems to know. There was no trash can, there were no clothes, nothing of that nature, and as much as you want to try, a cigarette is very unlikely to burn just random wood, and it's really not going to burn tile. So, this theory, of course, is utterly ridiculous in all ways, and feel free to mock them incessantly for it. But honestly, the cause isn't really important here. What's really important here is how something so mundane as an appliance fire in a single apartment, something that happens literally hundreds of times a day all over the world, turned into a deadly towering inferno. There are multiple reasons for this, but we're going to start with the blindingly obvious one that I hinted at earlier in the episode, the exterior cladding. So obviously putting the cladding over the exterior of the structure is, that is made of ridiculously flammable material is mind-numbingly stupid. And to do so, to save money in the grand scheme of things that's not that much money, just makes it all the more dumb. But it's not just the failure of that. You see, remember when I said they redid the windows and they, oh, you know, didn't put anything non-flammable between the window frames and the insulation on the exterior of the building? Yeah, so when the fire broke out in the refrigerator that was unfortunately close to the window, the fire quickly caused that UPVC covering to fail and fall away. This allowed the rapidly growing fire to begin to work on igniting the insulation on the other side of the window. And because that insulation has low thermal inertia, it doesn't take very long to heat up and ignite. Now, it's not so bad in theory. Once the fire brigade can put out the fridge, they can spray out the insulation and be done, right? Wrong. What happened next is a phenomenon known as the stack effect. And the best way I know how to describe it is like this. Imagine you are walking into a tall building in the dead of winter. When you open the door, air rushes in past you and creates a super strong wind behind you, right? What is happening there is the building is being heated for the winter. Heat obviously rises. 
So that heat that is being pumped into the building is rising and escaping out natural ventilation in the roof. What that does is create an imbalance of pressure at the base of the building. So when you open the door, the pressure balances out and air rushes in behind you to equal out the building because it, air doesn't like having uneven pressures. The reverse happens in the summer. The cool air is falling and creating a pressure imbalance at the top. When you open the door, air rushes out, air is pulled in from the top, and it equals out the imbalance. Now, how that applies to Grenfell. Remember how I told you that the insulation was up against the concrete, then there was a void space, then there was the rain screen cladding. So when the fire began to burn up in that insulation, it created a miniature stack effect. The heat from the fire was escaping upwards behind the cladding and in front of the insulation. This created a pressure imbalance at the base of the cladding, opening and underneath the flyer. This then drew in fresh air up from underneath the fire into the void space between the cladding and the insulation. With the cladding and the insulation providing an excellent fuel source, this constant supply of fresh air allowed the fire to spread terrifyingly fast up the face of the tower. Basically, it created a small wind that drove the fire upwards inside a tunnel of fuel. Imagine the Willy Wonka scene where he's doing the terrifying boat scene and it gets faster and faster and there seems to be no stopping it. It's that, but with fire. Now, to combat this effect, there should have been sprinklers installed within the space between the cladding and the insulation. Or they could have used non-flammable cladding. Either way would have stopped this from being nearly as bad. But, adding those sprinklers cost money, and that was money they didn't want to spend on low-income housing that they didn't have to care about. And also, using non-flammable cladding was expensive. They didn't want to have to spend that money on low-income housing and people they didn't care about, so they didn't do either of those things. But basically, once it got into that cladding, the building was basically gone. If they'd had a tower with a water cannon, they might have been able to stop it, but it's unlikely. It takes too long to get that set up to be effective. If they'd had a tower, that sh an aerial ladder that showed up with the first two pumps, they could have gotten it set up fast enough to prevent that cladding spread. They might have stopped it. But that's unlikely. It takes a lot to get those aerials set up. And, well, as we can tell, they didn't really expect this because they had no planning. Now, the other thing that went spectacularly wrong here, speaking of planning, was the London Fire Brigade's handling of this scene. Now, I'm not talking about individual firefighters here, like the firefighters that went up in the tower and were attempting to help people. I'm... They did everything they could given the circumstances that were given to them by command. I am talking specifically about the commanders and the command staff in the London Fire Brigade. The lack of communication between firefighters and incident command is damning. Firefighters knew extremely early on that the fire had penetrated back inside the building in the two floors above the initial fire floor. That is on the incident commander to recognize and act accordingly. But he didn't. He continued to stubbornly insist that they were going to be able to extinguish this fire. They were not. They, Once it began to travel up that exterior face, it was gone. The building was lost. That was the end of it. But not there yet. The lack of pre-planning really shines in this fire. Pre-planning is essential in firefighting. Anyone with a chance at command on a fire ground needs to know the insides and outside of the buildings and special risks inside their response area. 
there was no pre-hazard analysis. There was no pre-incident plan. They had no structural plans. They didn't even know the correct amount of floors in the building. That falls on command. They should know these things. They need to have training in this. The way this fire took off on them with no warning indicates they had never considered the fire could break containment. Never. That is a major, major problem. You need to account for worst-case scenarios in all pre-hazard plans. Even if it's ridiculous, you still need to account for it. Grenfell Tower is a 24-store building. It's a special hazard. You should have knowledge and contingencies for all potential incidents in the building, up to and including catastrophic failure, which requires mass evacuation of the tower. You need to have a search and rescue plan for the entire tower, which isn't just ad hoc pieces of paper run from the outside into the tower, relying on emergency calls from people trapped in the building and information that could be four, five, ten minutes old. Fires progress faster than that. It was never going to work. This fire went from the fifth floor to the 24th floor in 20 minutes. Getting information that's five minutes old, you get a fire, like, especially in this case, that's like one minute per floor. If you have a person on the 12th floor calling and saying they have smoke coming in their window, you wait five minutes to get that information to the fire ground, that fire's likely already inside that apartment and that person has moved. That's how fast this fire went. They were behind the entire time. They're going into the they're going into stoppage time down 3-0 just now pushing forward. Just now pulling their goalie, doing whatever they can to score. It's too late. You've already failed. You've already lost. The choice to place the command inside the tower was also interesting. It's understandable because there was only one staircase, but clearly it was not working as routinely firefighters were able to tag out from using SCBAs, self-contained breathing apparatus, without updating the incident commander. Even once the fire had reached the roof, the control room had received multiple emergency calls of fires entering the flats from the outside. The incident commander refused to change tactics. He still stuck with the stay in place and they would extinguish the fire. He made the assumption the fire had not breached the exterior of the building, which how anyone looking at the exterior of this building could make that assumption, I don't I don't know. But the idea is ludicrous and he would have understood this had he talked to literally any of the returning firefighters or asked them the right questions like, hey, where did you see fire? I don't know if maybe firefighters didn't describe well enough that they literally had fires in the flats. But, yeah, not sure what happened there. But, the stay-in-place order would have been rescinded soon on had this knowledge been given to the incident commander. But, he, I guess, chose not to seek out that information and it wasn't given to him. and Or, it was given to him and he didn't believe it? I don't know if he just couldn't understand that compartmentalization had absolutely just completely failed entirely in this situation, or what, or he was too proud to admit that they had lost, they had lost the building, I don't know, but it's weird. They also should have known radios would not work in the tower. This should have been a factor figured out in pre-planning, but obviously it was not because they did no pre-planning. Multiple firefighters reported that they reached the 20th floor, attempted the radio back down, and got nothing. 
not even just radio traffic. They got no sound whatsoever. It was completely dead silent. That is a problem they needed to figure out before the fire started, which falls back to pre-planning again. And sending firefighters up into that tower with essentially note cards telling them where to go is no system for search and rescue in anything, let alone a high-rise. Those firefighters risked their lives to try and save those people, and they did so admirably, but they were set up for failure by their superiors, because that is not a good way, especially when the information is several minutes old. There were numerous times firefighters would get to flats where people were reported to be, and find no one. But those people were just in a different flat. But the firefighters never knocked on that flat because that's not where they were told they were. They were told they were in a different flat. So they'd go up to, like with Jessica Urbano Ramirez, She, they were told she was in a flat on the 20th floor. They got there, the door was open, no one was inside, so they went back down. Control Center knew that she was on the 24th floor with several other people. But that information wasn't relayed to the fire department so that they could go up there and get them. Because it's likely, had that information been relayed, a 12-year-old girl would still be alive. All of those people in that flat might still be alive. But it wasn't radioed forward, and it wasn't given to them in a timely manner. And I can understand wanting to put the fire out. Good things tend to happen when you put wet stuff on red stuff. But sometimes, you just have to cut your losses lose the building to save the people. And that was not done here, but it absolutely should have been. And even despite trying not to lose the building, they still lost the building. Grinfeld Tower is a complete loss. So they didn't even succeed at that. And I realize that I've really ripped into the fire department here, and mostly just command structure of the fire department, but a lot of this really just falls on Basic, crappy penny-pinching of we didn't want to pay full price for this cladding or sprinklers or any of that, so we just didn't. Numerous times this building was reported for fire safety that was lax, for building codes that were being violated, for fire safety codes that were being violated. The people inside the tower reported it. The London Fire Brigade at one point reported it, and it was ignored. They were threatened with lawsuits. They were threatened with legal action. They were threatened into silence. And the two people that were running those organizations to get the building fixed died in this fire. They died in the very fire they predicted would happen. Those two women were Mariam Alguari, whose story I told you earlier of being on the phone with her brother and wanting to stay with her mom in the apartment. And the other one was Nadia Shokar. All they wanted to do was make their homes safer. And they were threatened and bullied into silence and then killed by the very disaster they predicted coming. The lives fall on the heads of those who refused to do anything to fix this building, who refused to just spend a little extra money to make it more safe. That's who lies at fault for this. The people who refused who valued money over human lives yet again that allowed for this disaster to happen, that allowed for 72 people, men, women, and children, to die needlessly in a fire that never should have happened. And with that, we've reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. 
As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History. Disastrous spelled correctly, H-S-T-R-Y. You can follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History, where I do some more videos on fires and other disasters that may not make episodes. Um, I have a Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash disastroushistory. There are multiple tiers and stuff like that with different stuff that you can get. Um, I do have some Disastrous History stickers for sale still. They're $3.00. Uh, if you want them, you can message me on Twitter and I'll let you know where to get them. I'd like to thank you all for the continuing support. I love that you guys listen. I'm really happy that you guys enjoy this podcast and I hope to continue to do it for you. As always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.